listening to The RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hi, and welcome to this week's RC podcast covering digital cinematography. This week, we're going to be covering Cine Gear 2012 in LA with two special guests, which I'll get to in one second. We're going to be talking about lenses, wireless monitoring, and plasma lights. All this and more in this week's RC podcast. And uh, look, we see our role here at the RC is to mine the news sort of filter the blogs, and yes, even to go down some serious rat holes. This is the kind of camera tech that we're discussing, obsessing about, arguing about, and yes, even trying to work out. Um, Anyway, this week on The Conversation, uh, Jason Wingrove is still tied up, though we're going to give you a link to one of the things he's been doing lately, which is just awesome. But I'm joined by two special guests from Los Angeles, my good friends, Jeff Huser and John Montgomery. How are you guys? Hey, Mike. How's it going? Great to be here. Hello, and good to have John here in LA with me. Yeah, so... This is a particularly good uh, episode to have you both, as you've both just been at Cinegear, which I was at last year, but obviously couldn't make this year. So I'm keen to talk to you and find out um, what was what and, uh, and discover. But let me start by saying Cinegear in LA, it's at Paramount. It's outside. Did you guys have good weather? Because it's kind of <laughs> an exposed kind of event. Yeah, it certainly was, especially uh, enjoying this type of weather after going, suffering through the Chicago winter, right? But um, no, it was really amazing to be actually out uh, out in the back lot on the studio on New York Street, you know, and, and hanging out and uh, really a, a good turnout uh, at the event. We arrived pretty early as it opened at 10 a.m. and there was a huge line to get in the parking lot, a huge line to get inside. And so it's really got, you know, it's really a great event for people here in L.A. Yeah, Mike, you'd have, you'd have chuckled because having been there with me last year, we went to that parking lot we parked in last year, and there was a huge line. So we thought, we'll be smart. We'll go over to the other side where the parking, where the entrance was. There's a parking lot over there. Hmm. And we found this parking lot empty. We pulled in. Everything's fine. Well, they switched the entrance to the opposite <laughs> side. <so. laughs> well, I guess it makes sense. It's kind of a working studio. They yeah. must have to rearrange all the time. Yeah, depending exactly, on what's depending upon what's, uh, what stage is available, and that's exactly what happened this time. So yeah. anyway, it was a... Uh, a great event. Not having been there before, I was I was impressed by it. I mean, I think it's a, especially considering the market that it is in, uh, really important to have such an event uh, here in Vegas. I mean, here in Los Vegas, Angeles. Los Angeles. I was yeah, just saying awesome. that though, and, but also it's uh, it's interesting actually having just been at NAB in Las Vegas. A lot of the parallels there between that show and this one as well, from a manufacturing gear standpoint. You know? Yeah, it's so close mm-hmm. to NAB that there's not like there's usually not a lot of amazing things released new at, at, it's not really a release show it's just kind of a chance to get your hands on in a little it's less a hands on show yeah, isn't it? exactly. yeah very much so and, 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 and ducking things that may fly by your head or roll by your feet too <laughs> was there any um, overriding theme this year that you sort of came away going wow everybody was showing X or was it just so fragmented by lights cameras and lenses and stuff that it was just whatever you're interested in? well I don't know what John thinks but I, I really wish somebody would make LED lighting I mean <laughs> It's a shame there's nobody doing that. <laughs> what was the other thing? There was another thing that was everywhere. Everybody had. It seemed like I don't remember what it was. Well, helicopter rigs seemed to be. Yeah, helicopter rigs were big. Oh, the rig. boat rig was cool. And, and, yes, they yeah. had a speedboat. Mike, you'd have appreciated this. A mariner that you oh, be. Oh, perfect. The effects guy, yeah. <laughs> yes, right. It had a. They had this speedboat there with a uh, a crane mounted to the very top of the boat, and it. I guess it was designed to hang over and and you know crane over at water level because they showed stills of. Um, you know, chasing uh, jet skis and stuff. It was pretty cool. Excellent. Well, coming up later in the show, we're going to have a, a few interviews for you from the show. I actually did one here right on the show uh, with um, uh, Cook Lenses discussing um, basically getting two stereo lenses to line up and stuff. And you guys had uh, two interviews, which we're going to get to later in the show, but do you want to just uh, preview what they're on? 
Yeah, I mean, one of the cool things that we saw at NAB uh, was this new, uh, some new light. I mean, Jeff talked about LEDs, and, and we're always looking for nice compact light for the interview stuff that we do for FX Guide and FX PhD uh, and things like that. And uh, Zacuto's plasma light is a bit further along at this point and still on target to ship, so we went and got an update on that. And it's, it's a really cool uh, light that we'll be talking about later in the show. And the, the other one, Jeff? Oh, um, we... Um Right before the show, we got a tweet uh, on the FX Guide News uh, channel, I think it was, uh, saying to check out this booth. And so we went by to see the Paralynx Aero um, wireless HDMI. Basically, um, you know, we've talked about other solutions for that before. And so we were kind of like, oh, let's go check this thing out. And they walked over and they handed us this little tiny thing. And we were like, that's it? So we'll talk to them about that. But it's this really uh, just small form factor kind of zero config HDMI wireless system. Yeah, very cool. Now, now, now I'm sure you won't mind mentioning, but was that the booth you walked up to just as Jason Wingrove was <laughs> yes. from Australia buying something? Well, no, they, right? they, they were, I over, I, as we walked down to the booth, I overheard one of the guys go, oh, I, I forgot to tell you, I, uh, I got an email from Jason Wingrove as soon as we announced this uh, asking how he could order it. So I whipped together a web page, and before I could even finish the page, he ordered it. And, <laughs> uh, and then we said, oh, Jace, yeah, we're here with FX Guy. They were like, oh, my God. They were very happy to see us. So yeah. that was funny. Um, it was will, good to hear Jason's name come out of a random mouth. Yes, Jason's obviously been phenomenally busy. I had lunch with him last week, and uh, we're going to post a show link note or a link in the show notes um, to uh, he's done some more C pool stuff, which is, as you know, uh, one of these sort of uh, pet projects of his that he's incredibly uh, enthusiastic about. And it's uh, just some gorgeous stuff shot both on uh, the it's high speed, not on the Phantom, but on the Vice Cam. And also on the um, Epic. And that's, uh, that's really nice. It's actually on his uh, Vimeo feed, but I'll give you a link to that in the show notes. And uh, it's really, really nice stuff. But this, um, you guys probably wouldn't appreciate this, but every year, one of the main sea pools in Australia, which is at uh, Bondi Beach, has a thing called the Bondi Icebergs. And these people jump in. The, now, of course, middle of winter in Australia is what <laughs> you would call like a mild day, John, but... But for Australia, it's bloody cold. <laughs> anyway, so they all jump in. But to make it matters worse, uh, just to really show off, they tend to jump in with large blocks of ice uh, into this sea pool. And it's, it's a great day, and they're people of all ages. And there's this great shot Jason's got of um, like 40, 50 people with large, huge hunks of ice all leaping uh, in slow motion into the air into this uh, pool, all laughing. I mean, and, and of course, annoyingly, because he's just so good at getting these yeah. shots. I love you the sequel think, videos, yeah. Well, you'd think this one shot was staged because in the middle of like 40 people, there is this little girl, she's like maybe eight, looking over at her mother who is in the foreground. It is the most brilliantly choreographed shot. I mean, if I didn't know better, I would say Jason had all these people as extras and they did it like 40 times to get this. And she's perfectly revealed by people moving faster than her, even though it's all in slow-mo. And the look on her face and that of her mother's as they hit the cold water, I mean, it's just... Um, it's one of those one in a million shots that I just couldn't believe was uh, was not rigged. But anyway, oh, that's uh, so, great. Can't wait to see uh, it. Yeah, but it was just very funny that he was buying uh, wireless stuff while you were there. Yeah. So look, um, let me just ask you one question about uh, CineGear. The show seems to have been developing up to have more lectures. Now I went to a lecture last year, which I found kind of be a bit lame. Um, did you guys see, or was there much talk about all these? Because there was talks there on ACES workflow. There was stuff on the F65. There was quite a few kind of what you almost call exhibitor-type uh, things. But there was also John Third Floor doing something on state of previs and stuff. 
You know, I, I have to say, Mike, we didn't have a chance to get to any of those, but when I saw the list, I was very impressed, and there were many that I wanted to go to but just didn't have the time this year to, to spend the day there, um, you know, going to a lot of those. But uh, the, the list was impressive, and I knew a yeah, lot of people it, were queued up for them. And, and in addition, I think the other big thing about that is the ability to actually screen some of the footage in a decent viewing environment right. to, to see what the cameras actually look like, too. That's that's one of the things, and again, at NAB, we'd seen some of this already So from, from our standpoint. But, I mean, you think of the number of people who hadn't gotten over there for that. I think that's another really interesting uh, piece of, of the event here in Los Angeles is uh, letting people go and actually look at the footage and kind of judge themselves as opposed to trying to watch something on the net, right? That's yeah. something you cannot do on the net. Yeah, and we talked to a couple of people who said that's why they were there. They were there to go see some footage, which is good. I will, I will say, looking down just that run of who was speaking, it seems to have been heavily supported by Sony. I mean, I see other things from other companies like Ari with people like Rob Legato and Vince Pace and stuff, but Sony seemed to have had like a really strong push there. Was there a sense of Sony being quite strong in a presence at the show itself? I saw a few F-65s on the, you know, on the booths around the, you know, cameras scattered around. And, you know, last year it was pretty much the beginnings of epics were on the show, although you had yours with you. And it was one of the few that it was one of the the only ones we saw in the wild. Um, But, you know, there were a couple on booths, but not many. Their booth wasn't entirely large. They had a booth with displays in it, which was about the size of the GoPro booth, really. Yeah. Right. So it wasn't the largest thing. But, you know, I think it makes sense, though. I mean, if you personally, if you do want to impact people, I think, Mike, that's a good way to go is to have those lectures, talk about people actually using your gear. You know, if, if in essence, you're going to inform and sell at the same time, I think that's a really good way of doing it. Yeah, I've got to say that um, some of those talks obviously did sound a bit like what we'd heard at um, at NAB, and there was one in particular that I picked up on the in the trades uh, discussion of 4K, and they were saying that the the you know the elephant in the room for 4K is super close up work. That getting those super close ups at 4K, which they're seeing off F65 and Epic, is just meaning that makeup is becoming like a pretty big deal. And I, I laughed when I heard Rob Legato's quote from the same panel, and he said, well, you know, you can just shoot that bit in 2K and then up it, and that'll act as like a filter. <laughs> That's <laughs> make great. Things look, make things look better. Yeah, so I think, in my contract, I will not be shot in 4K. I'll only funny. be shot HD yeah, or a... Somebody made a comment on Twitter the other day about one of the actors in one of these movies being projected 4K and kind of being like, that was a bad idea. I can't remember who it was or who tweeted it, so it's kind of a bad story, but I think it's a very true fact. It's, it's like the old anecdote about uh, West Wing when they went to high def, you know? Suddenly they had to redo the first few episodes after they went to high def. The plants out the Oval Office window all looked very plastic because <laughs> they could get away with that, and I think right. we're going to start seeing that quite a bit of a problem as people do start getting these higher resolutions and frame rates where stuff's and just of course, razor sharp. It was, it was last year that Canon committed to the professional film market in a way that we'd um, sort of rarely seen such a strong push before and set up the office in Los Angeles to have a sort of proper service support center. Did you get any uh, sense of Canon being there en masse? Lots of cameras on booths, lots of C300s, mm-hmm. um, right. lots, of, lots of rigs based around that form factor. Yeah, all the rig companies like Red Rock and uh, Zucuto. Uh, I think Zucuto had one. I'm not yeah, sure. So. Yeah, but I mean, uh, various other rigs and various other displays seem to have been loaned uh, quite a few uh, C300s to actually do that. Yeah, there was quite a bit so, of Canon gear on the floor. Yeah. Uh, way, way more Canon gear, I would say. There were Aries, a lot of Aries, I guess. A lot of Epics, a lot of Epics. I would say Epic was kind of the standard Still. on every booth. Yep. Hmm. And then other cameras scattered as, as they could be. 
So, John, what's your take on the C300, C500? Like, are you tempted by a Canon camera at that price point, giving that kind of performance? Is it far enough away from a 5D Mark III that, you know, it's worth spending the extra money? Or I, From this standpoint, from my personal thing, for what I do, I'll rent something like that. I don't think purchasing it's in the cards, honestly. I don't need it for what I'm personally doing. So that's not of interest to me from that standpoint. That's you actually know, something I've thought about because, you know, for a while the Red was so, oh, we can afford this camera, and people were buying this camera. And before that, of course, everything was rented pretty much for any kind of professional gear. And I was wondering if the newer saturation of all these new cameras coming along is going to make people kind of go back to the rental market, kind of go back to the rental model. I have no evidence of this. I'm just speaking off the top of my head that I, I, I could see people at one point wanting to own the, the means of acquisition, but you know, you, you reach a point where it's like you better be shooting enough that you're able to pay for it to keep it up to date because it's going to be out of date in a few years and you're going to want the newest, hottest thing. Yeah, yeah and, and I mention that only specifically because of the work I'm doing, Mike, right? I mean, that's the right. general what I'm doing with them, traveling. The 5D Mark III fits in the bag. It's got the gear. It works well. Um, that's why I say it from that standpoint. You know, that's for what we do specifically. You know, that's not effects shots. That's not something bigger than the kind of interviews that we're doing on effects guide or effects PhD, right? Um, so that's what I'm speaking to from from that standpoint. Not to mention the fact we do have the Scarlet as well. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But but again, that that a tool for the job thing. I mean, I think it's a really attractive camera, really interest. Uh, fits some interesting place in the workflow and usability and so forth. I'm not denying that. I'm just strictly saying for what I use it for is all. It's interesting. We had this discussion as part of our uh, camera tech course over at FX PhD with Tom Gleason. We were discussing this idea of owner-operator, and he was coming at it from the point of view, which, of course, uh, makes perfect sense, is that as you're seeing sort of prices come down across the board and people are screwing people over well not screwing people but screwing people down over right. the budgets it's just a good way for a DOP to make extra money if they can actually get a uh, you know slice of the rental business that's also part of the project now that's not relevant for feature films but for commercials and for other things it you know makes a difference to him if he can rent his gear and he can include his gear in the uh, in the setup and of course uh, Jason Wingrove, who's a director, does the same thing. He has camera gears, epics, um, whatever else, and he'll quite often package up uh, a lot of that stuff into his own um, productions. And it's it's a slightly different economic model because you're not renting it out to somebody else. You're just using it yourself as your own rental company, which means two things. Firstly, you have to rely on your own gear because you don't have that backup of, hey, it didn't work, just give me another one. Um, but also by the same token, you know it really well. It's set up the way you like it. it is everything is sort of like, you know, what you want it to be the way you want it to be. And uh, these guys, a lot of them, these owner operators, I think there's a real appeal in that, just having your own stuff, um, especially given that, you know, the stuff isn't that expensive, relatively speaking. No, no, if you can, you know, if you can pay for that and you have enough work for it, it really, really does make sense with the kind of quality images that you're getting from it. I agree with that. Can I rat hole tie into that just a little bit? Speaking from the post side of things, commercials, post side of things, for me, what's happened with all this camera equipment is, A, shooting ratios have gone through the roof. Oh, yeah. B, I would love a job with one camera type. I have not seen a job with only one (laughs) camera type in months. I mean, literally, it's like, yeah, the Alexa was the A camera, but then we got an Epic because we couldn't fit the Alexa where we wanted to go. 
So, you know, we were shooting some interior car stuff, and we really needed a smaller form factor. So we shot that with the Epic, and, oh, this needed to go in this arm, and it couldn't work with the Hodex box, so that's in uh, ProRes. And it's just like, really? Okay. Got any GoPro to go with that? Throw that in there, too? What the hell? Let, let me ask you that, because I know that, um, actually, there is now quite a lot of traction from the Codex box on the Alexa, and uh, there's a production <laughs> I know that just bought a bunch of them. Um, on features, but, I would agree with you. I've not, that, I've not features, seen it on yeah. commercials at all. I mean, literally, I'm going to guess. 20 jobs that have been shot with Alexa that I've seen, one I've gotten raw data from. One. How many have I yeah. asked for it on? All? <laughs> I was so, I mean, playing with- you know, it's just the ProRes is an easy solution for people. And I, you know, I, yeah. and I don't hate it. I don't, dis- I don't hate it. From a workflow standpoint, it's painful when you're, you know, not on a Macintosh. Well, that's true. But, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. And it's also the LUTed stuff. The LUT, you know, stuff comes back from the shoot, and everything needs a LUT now. I mean, if it's on a red, it's no problem. Throw it through the red rocket card, bing, bang, boom, you got what you need in almost real time. Um, but all these other cameras, I mean, the number of rough cuts I've seen that are log. And the number of people we were talking about last, the, the, the idea that they want to start editing with it quick, and then sure. the clients start getting used to log look, and hey, let's use that log look for the air look. There was a like conversation <laughs> somewhere in one of the forums. That might have been Tig. I don't remember about how people are seeing a lot of a more flat look on TV. And I swear to God, that's the reason. Yeah, well, we were in with, with the F65. And the F65 has its own version of like a red Cine X, uh, though without a red rocket card. And we were processing stuff uh, into ACES workflow and into um, doing stuff for uh, Rec. 709 because we were doing tests on that. But interestingly, as... I had criticized other people in the past. We managed to export a lot of F65 stuff with all the wrong settings because there's a button in that special, you know, uh, application, which, uh, by the way, in of itself has its own issues because it, you know, it seemed to run <laughs> under my current version of my Mac, which is um, 6, uh, was it 6, no, 10.7.3, but under 10.7.4, it doesn't run. Anyway. Um, mm-hmm. But it's called F65 Raw Viewer, not unsurprisingly. And uh, it has, you know, in it, obviously, a monitor LUT, so you can look at stuff not in um, in log. But at the bottom, when you export, unless you actually explicitly ask it not to, it exports it with the monitor LUT built in. Now, you can easily click it off, but I didn't know that. <laughs> so you've got this stuff you're outputting in linear ACES workflow. And guess what? It has a gamma curve in it. And I was like, What? And it just, we went back and went, oh, okay, so that button there, you need to change that button down here in the bottom right-hand corner. And I've got to say, like, I'm pretty across that stuff. If I can export a whole lot of stuff wrong, I kind of think other people yeah. are doing it as well, Jeff. No, you're absolutely right. And I, I laughed the other day because look at, look, look at the fuss that was going on when, it, when the red first came along and everybody was bitching about the workflow. Oh, my God, I, I, I'm so happy when we get a red job. Oh, really? it's like well because it's like easy peasy it's, it's like you know it's so it's, smoothed down though compared yeah. to that right I mean, oh yeah from the really, beginning it was it was really, there were some bumps really in the road but now. it's solid yeah and you can turn the dailies around quickly and you can then you know they, you cannot get screwed it's like you can you know if, if they shot a blue screen plate and they turn the saturation down to 0.1 to make it look less blue on the monitor it's not it doesn't hurt you right. it's in the, it's metadata so I, you know to me it's my preferred workflow camera from a post production standpoint just for that reason cuz I have no control over anything else. You know, I have no way to get back to it. I do find it a little susceptible, the red, to the um, the ratio that the data is compressed at. I, I didn't think that I would find it as much of a difference, but I really do like the blue screen stuff down um, 
at sort of eight to one when it's blue screen. And especially I like the light levels up. Give me low, low right. amounts right. of illumination on a high compression on a red in blue. And I'm not a happy camper. Right. And I'm saying this as a, as a bit of a red guy. Um, and we did a test, which was, gosh, I think that was in also in camera tech where we, we did a green screen set up with, um, uh, Tom Gleason, so it's perfect. And then we just turned <laughs> off the lights on the green screen, and so it just goes whoomp, down to what still, to your eye, looks like a you know very solid, very rich green. Mm-hmm. It's just very dark, and the ability to pull keys just sort of plummeted um, right. from mm-hmm. you know really sort of superb stuff. So that idea of sort of not bothering to light your green screen, that's the one that I wish we could change. I really wish we could get people to spend more time on set getting stuff looking nice, which is why you know we had the uh, RC hats with fix it in. Fix it on set rather than fix it yeah. in post because mm-hmm. it's just gorgeous when it when it's lit properly, as most of this stuff is. So, can I ask you both? Was there one thing that you sort of saw at the show that you went, "Huh, didn't expect that," or "That's a neat idea," or caught you kind of like thinking, "You know, genius." I wish I thought of that. Anything that sort of struck you as? I mean, for me, I guess that parallax thing, that- the parallax that we'll talk about. I think that was kind of like the hey surprise. Because it's just a nice form factor and cost and is nice. And the price is right yeah. on it, too. I think they've got a show special it. of like nine ninety five or something yeah, like that. Yeah, nine ninety five. So. That's That's impressive for what it yeah. is, and we'll hear more about that. And, and like I said, I, I the reason we're talking about the plasma light is because I thought that was a really neat bit of tech that I saw um, at NAB. And I'm actually going to head down and get together with the guys in Chicago at Zakudo as well to take a look at that and, and other things in more detail. Yeah, I do kind of like that idea. The, uh, the, the, light, the plasma lights are... You know, as we all know, with the LED lights, you're starting off with the you're instantly putting diffusion all over them to get rid of the multiple spots, and this kind of comes out of the box starting that way, which is nice. It's the closest thing in that compact form factor that gives me the light that looks like the Kino flows that we love, Mike. Yeah, really. Well, let's yeah. let's go to that plasma lights uh, interview. Sure, right this will be uh, Robin Christian from Zakudo. What makes this light so special and different compared to some of the alternatives out there? Well, I think the biggest thing is that we're looking, a filmmaker's always looking for even light. And it, you know, right off the bat, no matter you know, where you point this or how, you fa- how it falls off, there's a nice one single beam on your subject. There's not a lot of little bitty lights that you have to diffuse. You know, it's, it's right out of the box. It's almost like a you know, Chimera-style or Umbrella-style um, look and feel. And so I think that's the cool thing. But also just the, looking at the body of it, you know, so thin, you know, three millimeters for the the gas plane, it's um, it packs a wallop. You know, it's like um, having a you know plasma TV that's super thin and is on steroids. You know, it's just like bam, and so it can be put anywhere. I mean, there's there's companies like airplane companies that are interested in, in putting putting it in places, and it's um, but for film industry, you can walk with it. It's light. It's you can set it anywhere and hide it, and it's also visible too. How does the light output compare to some of the other alternatives out there? Now, I, I'm not a tech guy, but my understanding is that the um, you know typical LEDs will have like you know 1,800 lumens of hard light you have to diffuse, and and on um, ours it's like 2,300 lumens of soft light, so it's uh, it's very very vibrant and bright, and it's dimmable, and there's you know it has a lot of comparisons to LEDs where it's thin, it, it, you can touch it after a few hours, and it's not going to burn your hand, it has a long life, you know tens of thousands of hours. What about things like color, color purity? You know, a lot of the knock on the LEDs we're talking about is that 
bit of green in it or something. But what, what about the color spectrum out yes. of this? The analysis that I've seen are that it's it holds up because they manufacture it to exact specific, like 5600, and, and you know it can match HMI, so it will accompany anything else without being different. Every light will be exactly the same because it's pre-engineered that way. It's a gas that's being told what to do. So at the nanoscale level, they've fired the, the electrons. So the micro, that's why it's called microplasma. It's um, at the microscopic level, the plasma gas is, is engineered in a way that it creates this, and it's 40 patents on it, so it's not something you're going to find down the street. What about uh, traveling overseas? Do you need anything different with power supplies, frequency that you're dealing with with lighting and things like that? Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's a typical plug-in-the-wall uh, 110, so there's going to be adapters for it. It'll be very portable. One thing we're going to ship it with is you know, like barn doors and, and a power supply that has, has a dimmable feature on it where you'll be able to actually you know, hang it on the light, you know, walk with the light stand, or possibly, you know, set it up in, anywhere you want it. So. Do you know, I mean, one of the things about it isn't, is there a certain frequency that's coming off the light, though, that's different, depending, to match, like, PAL cycles, or if you're filming in PAL, do you know about well, it? It's it, you know, I know that there's no flicker and stuff like that. If you have, you know, people doing super slow motion it's not going to affect their light now i'm not sure about the cameras that do 100,000 frames per second but definitely if it's a typical even like a 1,000 frames per second camera that hollywood uses and that's not really our target as much as independent filmmakers you're not going to have any problems uh, can you talk a little bit about the setup of this though with the connector and the way it hooks up because it's not a traditional power supply into the actual physical light yeah we're still this is a this is a prototype so we're still fine-tuning we want a sturdy cord because you know, there's power going in there, but we don't. But we don't want a big bulky cord. A lot of the lights you see, you know, they, they may have a, 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 a thin, um, lightweight light, and then all of a sudden they, they pack a big, you know, chunky, you know, something you plug in the wall, and it's just too much weight. We're trying to keep it down and nice and thin and portable. I mean, I our goal is like you could do a three-point light kit, throw it in a, a bag that can actually go in the overhead bin of an airplane, you know. And what about for battery power type uh, situations well out in the field? Yeah, well, we're making the, that kit will include a, the ability to slap on an Anton Bauer or Sony. It has a right on the power supply itself. It'll come with that um, battery adapter. Um, I'm not, you know, I haven't seen the test, but you know how many hours it's good for. But um, you know, it's a bright light, so it's got to drain some, but it's it's still portable with that battery adapter. And what's the pricing on the equipment? I, uh, 1350 is MSRP, and it's, um, you know, which I think is very comparable. You know, it's 500 hours cheaper than your typical, you know, high-end LED, and it's comparable and it has advantages. Cool. Well, thanks so much for taking time to talk to us. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. FX Guide. So, John, just sorry, just to be really clear for people that maybe um, somehow miraculously missed our coverage from NAB, um, what exactly is a plasma light? Like, is it just, uh, is that a name that makes sense? Is it actually plasma? Yeah, it is. It is. It's actually, there's a company in Champaign, Illinois, uh, that's developed uh, this technology. Uh, and I think due to the close proximity of it to uh, Zacuto in Chicago, uh, developed this. So it's just microplasma. And it's just, it, basically, it's just, what's really interesting is it's incredibly thin um, kind of plate almost. It's like a, a film or a glass plate almost that is what i could explain it as that has just incredibly smooth soft very very soft light coming up off of it incredibly dimmable maintains its purity at various dimming levels the whole light panel is 
you know, less than an inch thick. We, you know, we have a, a still in the show notes we'll show you with the iPhone up to it. And it's probably like the width of two iPhones, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. that. Well, they had a thing on the case that was just a round circle of the material, and it was wafer thin. I mean, I don't. The form factor, I think, maybe as much for stability and sturdiness and exactly. robustness. It looked like they had the ability to make it kind of more. Even for, yeah, but it, a lot of it that does has to, has to do with what you say and, and yeah, uh, and the hardware was beautiful. I mean, it was very ro- very Zakuto like, you know, nice knobs and stuff. Yeah, it was still perfect. We, we bought a bunch of those lights at NAB, the new LED ones that we've been using. Um, and the thing that struck me about those when I got them for the first time is just how light they were to pick up, which is of course great for traveling. How does this plasma compare? This is, is it just as light. Yeah, no, this heavier? is this is heavier, and it, and it does take because it's a microplasma technology. I think the power supply requirements are, are greater on it yeah. than what you would have on those LED lights. So this is not something Mike that would replace those things, but this would be like if you really want to get serious and take kind of a a Kinoflow style setup. I think this yeah. is this would compete with that. He was talking um, about like a. Um, a Pelican case with a three-point lighting kit in it, kind of maybe even with a built-in power supply, so you'd have like one power cord and then spin off your... They were doing some really clever stuff with very nice thin power cables, Yeah, really mm-hmm. sturdy. So, so the yeah. idea would be you could roll up to do an interview and kind of do that. A three-light kit would fit in a carry-on-sized form case that you could take on uh, yeah. on the flight, and that would include your stands, lights, the power supply, and everything like that. And, and I mean, if you, and if you look at it, um, you know, the... The light output's almost close to double, uh, not quite double, but just under double maybe the size of some other one-by-one panels, LED panels. Right. So it's actually a much brighter light source, and it's, it's just, again, it's got that just beautiful softness that you do not get from the LEDs. Um, it's also not susceptible to those, you know, that, that dreaded, often talked about kind of spiky green look in the LEDs mm-hmm. that people talk about a lot. The, the color purity is across the spectrum is much better at, at 5,800 across. So it really is a, um, really is a, a nice looking light. And, and it's actually cheaper than any of those other alternatives, such as the one by one light panel or the Lowell or, or Ross, um, as well. So I, it's, I will it's an say Sakudo is. Sakudo is a really warm, fuzzy feeling I have when you say that because, you know, they do tend to make stuff that's practical. Yeah, they do, and, and really great group of, great group of folks with them as well. So it'll be interesting, and again, we've been invited to, to go there. It's just down the street. I get, I get my hair cut in the same building. Um, yeah. So I'll go and, go and check them out in, in, in some time but, uh, when they're getting closer. But they're still on target to ship. Uh, this summer, there's no delay. They're still on plan to do it, which is actually really good news as well. So again, it kind of fits the bill. Not in that super micro light travel thing that uh, I'm carrying with out here and went to FMX or London with, but uh, very uh, just I think a step up in quality from those lights as well. Well, yeah, and obviously when you do the nice hardware and the heavier frame and stuff, the stand becomes bigger. And yeah, like you said, the power supply is a big question mark because I mean they were showing it with batteries, but they were showing it with Zlox. So. Wow. You know, they're bigger batteries, which obviously you could mm-hmm. run multiple lights probably off that, but still, they were they were pretty heavy. Yeah, the the power supply, and again, I don't want to, you don't want to read too much into this, mic because it is a development model, and it's already smaller than right. what we saw at NAB, but the, the power brick is probably nine inches by six by six. Yeah, he just guessed it would probably inches. be a couple inches when it was done. Yeah. Tall, so, it was hoping. Yeah, but... Um, Again, it's a, a interesting, interesting thing. And good to catch up and see that they're still in development. It's not just some technology showing that you know sees the light of day at any and we don't see again for a year. Well, in mentioning mm-hmm. light panels earlier, I, I did see a thing go by the wires um, 
right after we got back from Senegar. We didn't see them at Senegar. Um, maybe they were there. We didn't see them, though. I mean, we didn't see these lights. They apparently have announced a one-by-one uh, -one budget version for like under $1,000. I didn't see the lights. I saw the booth. I did not see the yeah, lights. I didn't see anything new. Overlooked it. Yeah, so. but it's the LED. It's, it's LED style, but obviously the market pressures must be getting everybody to kind of bring those prices down and yeah, you know, I like the light panel stuff too. But I, I, I got to say though, Jeff's pick, Mike, is the the cool thing that we saw at the show by far. The the Paralynx, uh, yeah, really, really impressive. Be nice to get it in somebody. I guess Jason will have one soon. Hopefully, we'll get a report. But we get it into somebody's hands to uh, to see. I would say the um, the transmitter to describe it. You'll see photos with hand references in the in the show notes. But the transmitter was remember those i those iPods that were like sticks of gum. Kind, oh, yeah. of, kind of feeling. It's a little bit bigger than that. I, I think I was thinking today on the way over here, it's like a USB uh, mobile modem. You know, yeah, yeah, a stick yeah. that you oh, put yeah. in your USB drive for cellular data. That's, that's about exactly the size it. of it, but that's heavier than this. I mean, it's about... Oh, this, this thing is, weighs this nothing. Is, it's feather light. Yeah. I mean, you, I don't think you'd stick this out transfer. of the camera. I think you'd do it to a cable and set it off to the side, but it's, uh, it's light enough that you could... You know, the, I was thinking about it. Whatever you're going to power this with is going to weigh more than the thing itself. I thought, though, I saw it on a camera with a down converter. What, what does it take in? Well, I guess we should listen just to the Just HDMI. HDMI in. It's just, it's okay. literally, that's it. It's one HDMI connector and this box. That's it. And there's a, US, there's a micro USB on the side. That's it. That's the entire mm -hmm. hardware on the, on the transmitter side and the receiver side, as I remember. Yeah, the receiver is just a tiny bit bigger. It's about Maybe. double the width, but yeah. about the same thickness and also light as heck. It's got... The receiver has a bit more, I believe, a bit more power requirements, so it's got a power in it as well. You can power it for USB power. Like if you had yeah. a USB battery, you could do it. Yeah, he but, talks about that in the interview. Yeah. Why don't we go to that now? It's, uh, it's Dan Keynes from Paralynx talking about the Paralynx Arrow. Uh, the Paralynx Arrow is an uncompressed wireless HD transmitter that has a range of up to 320 feet line of sight and up to 200 feet through walls, depending on what walls you're uh, sending through. And uh, picture quality? Uh, the picture quality is uncompromised by the transmitter because it doesn't utilize compression. Um, it multiplexes the signal, and so uh, you have no signal degradation. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's quality. It's up to, you know, 422 sampling. 1920, 1080. 1920 by 1080p. Mm -hmm. and, or PSF. And what about delay? Uh, it has less than two milliseconds delay, so, you know, that's less than a frame. One of the things I've been impressed with is the size. I mean, we've seen transmitters before, but this one's really small and lightweight. Yeah, that's one of the things we're uh, very proud of with this transmitter system. Uh, the size makes it so convenient. You can really place it anywhere on the camera, um, whether you're working with a big camera or a small camera. Everyone needs more real estate in the uh, motion picture production world. So, And then power, how, does it, how is it powered? Um, we offer a DTAP power supply included in the kit, which will power the transmitter, and you can also power the receiver with the DTAP. And uh, one of the other benefits of the DTAP is that it provides USB power, so you could charge your cell phone, iPhone, iPad. Um, it gives up to 2.1 amps, so you can run your iPad from it if you need a charge. And uh, you could also power the receiver or the transmitter from a USB battery, um, I got one from Lenmar on Amazon for about 30 bucks, and that'll run it for about eight hours. And how many of these could you run on a set? For example, if you needed to have multiple cameras, could you run more than one? Absolutely. You could run up to six systems concurrently in the same area. And uh, they're paired in a one-to-one -one, uh, 
platform, although you can change channels between them. And uh, we're investigating the possibility of making one to multiple receivers, so one transmitter to multi-receiver. Uh, but we're using 128-bit encryption to protect the signal from being viewed by people who shouldn't be watching the signal. So that's something that we have to consider with the multi-receiver capability. So you can figure it with a computer then, I assume, plug into the side? or No, currently it's plug-and-play, uh, no configuration necessary. There is an on-screen display that you can utilize with a, a remote that's included, um, but there's not much configuration necessary. It's just basically plug-and-go. But if we add future features with the firmware, um, you'll have control of those features through the remote. Okay, thanks very much. So, Jeff, you obviously, you know, kind of impressed by how small it was. I guess my th- question is, how much of a compromise is it going to be on image quality? Like, is it uh, sending he, back something that's like 4202-bit? No, 10-bit, 422. Um, I mean, pictures are, actually look really uncompressed. good. Uncompressed. Uncompressed. The pictures look good. Um, oh, really? You know, this is one of those things that, you know, hey, I was blown away. They were walking around with a little receiver there that you could hold and play with, and it was really impressive. It's one of those things. I think, I think we've had a little bit of demo love and disappointment in the past with some of the wireless solutions. Uh, I'm, yeah, so this is going to take them some, to work reliably. Basically. Yeah, so I think this the, the fact the thing I liked about this was the price, the size, and the zero configuration stuff. Well, actually, the thing I like about it is the fact that you, at a show with as much RF and other <laughs> crap going on as you would likely get on any set on any day, yeah, it seemed to be working, didn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah, and oh, it, yeah. it was you a decent I mean? range, Mike. Too. I mean, I was it was down the corner kind of stuff. Yeah, like three hundred feet. They said line of sight. Yeah. But, it's but like how many times have we been at a show and they go, well, it's not working here, of course, because there's like so much RF. <laughs> yeah, he said it's not, wi- it says in the, in the stuff, the papers they gave us, it's not Wi-Fi. It uses uh, frequency skipping stuff and it's pretty clever. They said you can have up to six of them on a, in a, on a set. Um, mm. Yeah. So, you know, it's one of those things that's going to be one of them, get it, get it in somebody's hands and get some reports back to see how it really performs. But I think it's definitely something to watch. That's for sure. What booth cool, was yes. Do we remember what booth that was on? Well, thank the guys, though, actually, for uh, pinging us on FX Guy News on Twitter for actually coming by to take a look at it and let us know that they were there, because uh, I know they're listeners of the, the podcast, so I'm, I'm glad they actually gave us a ping before we headed out there, because it's something, I, I frankly, you might have missed if you were oh, yeah. wa- it was so around. Small. It was, it was, it was, <laughs> yeah, it's so small and light. It's easy to not see, unlike those giant I, yeah. 20K. You know. Well, and they had a guy walking around with the wireless thing, and you know, at, at a show like that, if one more person walks by you and tries to get you to look at something they're holding in their hand as you walk by, you just want to knock them over. But th- this was well, like, it is oh, a bit good. like what am I looking at? Am I looking at the monitor or am I looking at the right. thing that's holding the monitor? Or am I looking right. at the thing that's transmitting to the monitor that the right. guy's holding? I mean, yeah. you know. Well, they were actually clever because they, they saw us coming. He put the thing in our hands and we were kind of like, oh, that's nice. And then somebody else like handed us the, other, the, the demo pieces. And I was like, uh-huh. that's what's doing this? <laughs> really? Yeah. Okay. That's, and I had seen the video before that, so I knew it, at that point what it was. I was like, oh, that's cool. Uh, well, let me um, just segue into my interview that I did just can, about can the Can I just give the, the Tool of the oh, Show yeah. Award? The Tool of the Show Award? Do you know who I'm talking about? The guy no. walking around with the GoPro? No. The guy uh, walking around oh, with the GoPro? Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> the Tool of the Show Award, the RC Tool of the... It was as in basically, Tool, as in complete jerk. Well, oh, I don't, you know, I, you may be a really nice guy. I don't yeah. say it, but he basically <laughs> had this huge rig around his belt and shoulder. You know, there's always somebody at a trade show that's wearing some ridiculous rig that you're like oh my god i can't believe you even go out in public wearing that (laughs) basically with a gopro camera filming himself pointed at himself wandering around the show 
And with a giant boom mic sticking out but what was he over filming? the top, right? Himself. What was the primary camera? Oh, that, that was, was what the his GoPro was on camera. the boom thing? His, his primary camera was the GoPro, I believe, filming back at him. Oh, man. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. And if, he's, and if you listen so, to this podcast, I so, really apologize. We'll send you an RC hat because we love you, man. But, <laughs> so hang on. There's a guy walking around doing interviews that's filming well, I, himself. I don't know what he was doing. We didn't see him interview. I didn't see him interviewing him. It was, we giant, it was a giant harness. The one, if it's the same guy, it was a giant harness and it had a rod that went up his back. And then there was a boom sticking out about four or five feet in front of his face. It might be a different guy. Maybe it was a different guy. Just, I thought that was a, a microphone point here, but actually a GoPro is about the size of a really small thing that yeah. doesn't need a really big rig. Yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah. Oh, I know. The GoPro booth was actually hysterical because they had banks of, what was it, like 48 of them or something like yeah. that on yeah. a wall, and they had a, a guy wearing three of them on his sleeve. And so, Yeah, anyway, if you listen to this podcast and that was you, I'd love to hear what you were <laughs> doing and, you know. What the hell were you doing? <laughs> you probably discovered that he was like producing a complete LiDAR scan of the entire arena, and you'll be like, oh, my God, that's I, and, so awesome. And again, I, right. I will, me a couple, I will come back in yeah. respect for that. Of course, and, but, if and, he's uh, just got a huge rig to film himself on a GoPro for no apparent reason, then... Yeah. Then the well, award shall be awarded. Because it's, you know, it's right. industry folk. You really don't want to be embarrassing yourself in that crowd, really. Yeah. Well, I was no, proud. No, of, I didn't see anybody shooting with an iPad, so I was happy about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike weddings and stuff oh, now. You know, it's Unlike an like, Really? Yes. Um, I was at a music festival outdoors, and somebody was trying to film the band with an iPad. I'm like, really? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty funny. Though my daughter sat in the car on the weekend, looking out the window with it, going, "It looks really good." I'm like, you know, if you just look out the window, it looks really good. <laughs> These kids today. <laughs> you know, it's like, hello, <laughs> I'm missing something here. Virtual reality hey, is so um, much better. I wanted to discuss something. Yes. I don't know if the new Martin Scorsese film, uh, The Wolf of Wall Street, is going to be shot in stereo. This is the one with Jonah Hill and Leonardo DiCaprio, which um, I understand that Rob Legato, who was there at uh, at the uh, show at Cinegear, was because um, he was there talking about stereo. Of course, Rob's going to be VFX supervisor and second unit director on this new film. But he was there at Cinegear discussing um, uh, the stuff to do with a bunch of stuff. And, of course, being um, that they shot in stereo... Uh, on Hugo, I that film gets me a segue into um, the lenses. Now they shot on Cook lenses, and Cook lenses were all three of the range of mm-hmm. Cook lenses, which is really the S5, the S4, and what is effectively, as you'll hear in this interview, a mini S4. Although it's obviously hmm. called the Pancro, and they just couldn't tell any difference between them at an f-stop that was appropriate on all lenses, because obviously the the bigger ones are faster and can go to an f-stop that the other ones can't. Right. But assuming for a second that you are on an f-stop that is common to all those lenses on the stereo rig uh, on the Alexis they literally couldn't tell the difference between whichever one they were on um, it was so good but it wow. struck me that in all the technical discussions we'd had over shooting stereo and stuff we hadn't actually got much into lens pairing and I was always interested uh, mm. to discuss this because quite often you know you'll hear somebody saying um, you know we paired up the lenses and blah 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 and I was always thinking to myself what aspect of lens pairing are you actually pairing on? Like, there's a lot oh, of great. characteristics over a lens. You know, from we've had some dodgy lenses, though. It's so funny because Cook is so far away from this that they right. didn't even like acknowledge it was a problem. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we had a, we had some dodgy lenses that that literally the focus fall off wasn't identical. So clearly, one was focusing slightly in front of the other. So one went into defocus sooner. It's funny, but, you don't yeah, think about that stuff at all. I, mean, I remember, Mike, I did that class a long time ago for you with Eli Jarrah about time-lapse, and he was doing a lot of stereo stuff with the epics. And mm-hmm. when I got there, he had his lenses labeled left and right, and I was like, really? He's like, oh, yes, absolutely, have to. 
He's like, I want yeah. them. I've tested them. I've checked them. This is what I want them to be the same all the time. And I was like, wow, I never thought about that. Yeah. Well, I was sort of curious to see if we couldn't drill down a little bit on what it was that made good lenses, proper professional lenses, um, a good pair. And just where the, uh, the variation is coming from, because quite frankly, you know, it's easy as we would all know, to sort of assume pretty sort of normally is the case that if you're picking up a, you know, an ultra prime or whatever, that a 50 is a 50 is a 50. And it's only when you come to stereo that it starts to become like a noticeable difference. And in fact, even as you'll hear in this interview with Les from Cook Lenses, it's probably not visible to the eye, though it's visible enough in the post-production pipeline to become um, an issue on set. Anyway, they did that uh, on uh, Hugo and I got to talk to Les. He's a good friend of um, FX Guides and FX PhDs. He was just about to uh, to appear at Cinegear, but obviously I couldn't be there, and uh, I had missed him at NAB, so I took this opportunity to have this chat with him. So uh, have a listen to this. We're basically, as I say, discussing some of the geek-out technical stuff around lens pairings. So firstly, <laughs> how are you? Other than uh, tired, I'm doing, doing really well. Um, you know, uh, Cook. This seems to go from strength to strength. Uh, my barber's healthy. My kids are healthy. I'm doing well. Uh, business is good. So uh, I, I can't complain about anything. Excellent. Well, you know, it's just like NAB, we had nothing new. Uh, we are struggling to uh, try to meet the incredible demand that uh, the onslaught of digital has uh Created uh, and to to not that we aren't working on new things and have some stuff in our back pocket, but to introduce new stuff now with just uh, my my people that are waiting for months and months and months for delivery would just sort of yell at me saying, you know, how dare you? You can't deliver what you got. And by the way, put me on the list for that new stuff too. <laughs> but, uh, you must have been very happy with, of course, the way that Hugo went because it was a real test case for cook interchangeability and cook look. Absolutely. You know, I really, uh, Bob Richardson and his assistant, uh, Gregor, uh, just did amazing homework to define the look they wanted. Uh, I'm honored that they picked cook. And then on top of that, we had. All three, all three generations of cook lenses, the fives, the fours, and the pancros, working uh, side by side was just phenomenal. I wanted to ask and, you about that because not only was that a really good-looking film, but of course it was shot stereoscopically, not converted. And I was wondering um, about the pairing of lenses. How naturally did the lenses pair, and how much did you have to work to get this? What we discovered it was it was an interesting exercise is uh, you know that they had that equipment came via pace and when Vince called and they said okay Vince we've done 3D movies before but nothing on you know not to my knowledge anything on this level so what is what is a match fair and much to my surprise nobody really knew uh, luckily they were shooting in in, in uh, London which was very obviously convenient for the factory. So working with uh, Vince's people, the production people, Bob Richardson, Gregor, and uh, and the camera crew, we empirically 
basically found out what a matched pair of lenses is, how close they have to be uh, agree in focal length. You know, I'd love to tell you that every 50 millimeter cook lens is exactly balls on 50 millimeter, but it's not. And nobody else is this either. You know, it's plus or minus a little bit depending on all, all the, you know, the variables that go into making a lens, all the tolerances. That, uh, and in normal shooting, in normal 2D shooting, the differences are negligible uh, and unnoticeable. But obviously, when you're trying to lay one image over the top of the other, have it uh, match as exactly as possible, negligible is, uh, becomes a big area. So tell me, what are the things that you're trying to focus on getting right? I'm, I'm guessing that every aspect of the lens, but there are obviously key things that make a big difference. For example, if I set one to f2, I want that to really be an accurate level of exposure between one lens and another. But similarly, if I mark it at 15 feet, I want it to be the same right. focus. And then, of course, there's field of view and and things to do with uh, the optical characteristics of the right. lens as it goes out to the corners. Well, I think the biggest issue, uh, assuming that your T-stops are right and ours are all individually scaled, so we are, we've never been accused of uh, mismarking our T-stops, uh, and your footage marks are correct, and once again, that each lens is hand-measured, so uh, if the camera is set correctly, there should be you know 15 feet on should be 15 feet. The biggest issue becomes one of focal point uh, because that will change slightly the angle of view. Now, we're only talking, you know, we're talking less than one-tenth of one percent. So we're really talking small numbers, you know. So you're talking about, as I said, in 2D, you, you could put two lenses up on a projector and you'd be hard-pressed to actually measure the difference. You certainly wouldn't see it. Could you measure the difference between two two lenses? Probably yes, but it, you'd need some very you know some, some relatively good measuring equipment. Right. So we're we're talking about so the, the real the real key here is you want the horizontal angle of view to be the same. So when they basically so the image size will be the same for the two lenses. Okay, so if I was trying to pair a couple of cooks, I could be pretty comfortable that the amount of light coming in the f-stop is fine. As far as focus goes, obviously it's a bit of a nonsense thing to talk about it being exactly 15 feet in one sense because what we're really concerned about is, you know, it's like a, it's a scale. How it goes in and out of focus is not uh, an on-off switch with focus. It obviously just is at a point of acceptability. But as you've tested that per hand lens, I'm assuming that any differences there are negligible. So the really thing if I was trying to line up two cooks is to test them for the field of view, not anything to do with optics? I think that's actually, that's actually true of not only us, it's true of any lens. Uh, assuming that we all mark our lenses correctly and, you know... We'll hey, just, actually, we'll I don't I want to be rude or anything, but I, I've con I will object and say that not your lenses, but I have had other lenses where 15 feet well, in 15 feet meant that actually the rate of fall-off in the, in the defocus beyond the point of acceptable focus was different, that literally one got more defocused more quickly in, in terms of, you know, feet beyond the subject than the other. And that's when I was, I was kind of stunned by that, but that wasn't with the Cook lenses. So I, I, I think you're being generous. 
anyway, but for the leisure experience, you know, just put that aside for the moment. Yep. The the I think the two biggest the biggest thing in matching a lens for three D work is to be sure that the focal length is within this very small window of opportunity. Yep. Uh, which is, as I said, less than a tenth of a, less than half a tenth of a percent. You know, we're talking very, very closely matching. Um, so, so it was it was really an interesting experience. And as I said, because they were shooting in London, it really didn't make it. Well, thank God they were shooting in Sydney. You know, that was very <laughs> nice. Because uh, there were a lot of trips back and forth, and up, you know, up the M1 to um, to sort this out. Because as I said, nobody really knew. And and just that last point that we hadn't addressed, uh, which is that the actual, um, you know, resolution and sharpness and uh, everything to the outside of the lens, all of that is is pretty much not a concern because it it is nearly always close inside tolerance? There's no sort of thing that you need to look for there in terms of... Uh... I'm not sure I follow the question. Well, uh, so clearly um, uh, on some lenses, as you go out to the edges of the lenses, you'll have a f- uh, very subtle differences in uh, contrast or sharpness or just uh, chromatic aberration or a bunch of other things, especially on some lenses. But I presume on Cook's, they're, they're so clean across that it, that's not an issue when trying to match lenses, that there's nothing cr- optically... It, it, it hasn't... It, hasn't reared its ugly head with us. We do, I think we have a very consistent, I think we're really known for a real consistency of build. And, you know, the, the lens, the S4 you get today is, is compared to the S4 you got five years ago, side by side, I don't think people see a difference. So. Right. And, and when they were matched, therefore... Uh, that was it. Like it was one matching at sort of pre-production, effectively, and then you were you were good to go. There's nothing uh, else to yeah. be done, was there? No, no. I mean, uh, we, uh, as I said, Hugo started with two sets of fives. They were really worried about uh, light and speed because they were using uh, Pace's mirror units. Yep. And uh, they had they, they had I think almost you know the first. Seven Alexas that either pretty damn near serial number one. Yep. Um, and so I think they were a little bit nervous. They were going in sort of the unknown with the Alexa. It turned out obviously great. Uh, and but they discovered early on that a they had they were basically using three rigs, two two, two rigs and a Steadicam rig, and so they were they. they discovered early on that speed really wasn't the issue with the Alexa. Uh, so they quickly added two sets of fours, which Vince already had. And then for uh, the Steadicam work, picked up two sets of Pancros. I've made a lot of mistakes. One of them was reviving the Pancro name. Uh, it, that, that has sown a lot of confusion. People, Some people are... Uh, Disappointed because they're not the old Pancros. Some people are disappointed. Uh, well, some people just don't understand. They're really mini S4s. So yeah. if, you, if, we, if you've seen any of our latest advertising, we're not dropping the Pancro name because I think it's a great name that deserves to uh, continue. 
but we are sort of re, we're, we're subtitling the new Panthers mini S fours, uh, and that's really uh, what they are. And of course, in the Steadicam instance, that was exactly the need because you wanted lighter weight lenses. It wasn't really anything uh, to do with anything other than just weight and size of lenses on the rig. Right, right. And and speed with these digital cameras really, unless you really want the non-existent depth of field, uh, speed is is uh, at two eight is really a non-issue. Yeah, and of course they're all. Uh, color balance and stuff in a modern sense, but they also contain your um, eye technology. So they are like really a modern lens. They, they do. The, the yeah, name, all of our lenses, yeah, all, the name all hails of back, but doesn't, it's not like old technology. No. Uh, they're, uh, and the, the eye system, uh, they did record all the data, although at, at the time they shot it, the Alexa was not supporting um, the internal data. Yep. So, and synchros only have the internal connection. However, Alexa, uh, Ari announced at NAV, they will be turning on eye support uh, later this fall. Which is something we've been waiting for for several years now. And uh, <laughs> really, you would be yeah, I mean, you know, that coupled with what is nominally meant to be gyro support in the epics uh, could provide a whole wealth of information that people want. We just need to get that uh, get a, accepted and, and adopted so that we can all benefit as an industry. Well, we're, we're not sitting still on I. There, there are, over the next year or so, we're going to be updating I with, uh, you know, the I system was originally designed back in around 2001. Uh, electronics have gotten far more sophisticated, far smaller, far more powerful. And, you know, one of our, one of our, it turned out to be a strength, but one of our constraints on the eye system is that the lens is all I own. It's all my real estate. So with, with the metadata, I have to put everything in the lens. So I'm going to have a microprocessor. Uh, all, all the data has to be translated and, and made up and, and output from the lens. Airy, when they developed their system, their LDS system, they had both halves so they could they actually made their lenses sort of like a dumb terminal, right? And put their put the brains in the camera. Um, so the fact that uh, a lot of these components that uh, are getting smaller now will allow us to do things with eye that we've been thinking about for for years and, and really wanted to, to add to it, but never had the space. Yep. Um, and we're adding new eye partners. I mean, that Fujinon just introduced their new new PL lenses, our our eye lenses. Uh, obviously, Airy when they turn the Alexa on this fall, Red, uh, Sony. So the eye the eye system is is sort of is gaining traction. Yeah, and and for those that maybe aren't so familiar, what we're talking about is the ability for the lens to be a constant data stream of metadata on what's going on on the lens, which is exactly what we want in post. But in particular with the digital cameras, what was so appealing about it is that while you have an exterior mount on the uh, on the sort of bigger lenses, say an S4 has an exterior mount that can go to an exterior recorder, if you can embed that metadata in the data stream where it's actually completely linked to the frame that you know you're looking at then you're going to know on this frame this is where the lens was at and you don't have to do a sort of a post process to bring those two into alignment and that that's incredibly powerful and i know a lot of people from 
from pixel farm type sort of tracking companies to us to other people who are just keen to see this get to a point, a tipping point where that's the norm and then we can rely on data in a way we can't because I, honestly if it's recorded in the metadata at the time of the recording in the, in the camera, this is reliable data. It's metadata we can take to the bank. It's not subject Absolutely. to human error. It's the, whole, it's, the, it's, the whole, it's the holy grail. Yeah. You know, when, when we were doing this, when we shot that test with you, God knows, about 10 years ago? <laughs> it wasn't 10, but it was a while, yeah. At your mother's house, um, we were doing it with the data on a recorder, and, and it was, you know, you had to, it was sort of like shooting sync sound. It was a real pain. Uh, the holy grail is, is, the, is recording the data at, within the data stream at the frame. Yeah. That's absolutely it. And once we uh, get, it would be nice if, if Aerie and Red and Sony and all these other guys could all get together and decide where to put it. Yeah, but, absolutely. Because if things like the camera tracker and Nuke can reliably get at the eye data, that's going to provide just a lot more information, including stuff to how to understort the plate, um, which would make a, a really you know great difference. And and literally, what we just need is that sort of push to get it over the edge in terms of acceptance because I don't think there's a technical problem now it's just we need to know that enough lenses have it and enough people have it automatically happening that you can use it gaining, as I said earlier I think we are gaining some traction uh, Ingenue is also supporting the system they weren't quite ready with their I what they call ADS Ingenue data system uh, but it's an I system they weren't quite ready for it with their on their long zooms when they shot Yugo uh so, but it's all, all the all on the, on the lens side actually with between Fujinon and, and Anjanil and ourselves. Um, you know, I, I think there's certainly enough there to shoot a major film now. Yeah, uh, and there are other things like motion control. Must love the idea of being able to get data coming off the lens as they're working. I mean, it's just a ton absolutely. of stuff. Um, yeah, absolutely. we work with Mark Roberts uh, out of London. Um, um, he's eye compatible and can read the data, record it, and use it to play it back. Yeah, and a Milo rig is, you know, a, a brilliant motion control rig. Yep. Well, look, thanks for talking to us and updating us. Now, if people can't make it to Cinegear, which is, of course, happening uh, in Los Angeles, they can also hook up with you at uh, IBC because... Uh, IBC, also Cynic, uh, two weeks after IBC, uh, if they check the Cook Optics website, uh, there's a calendar. There should be a calendar up there of where we are and when. And of course, they can email me anytime, anywhere. Okay. Well, hopefully, we'll get to see you soon, my friend. And thanks for talking to us. Really appreciate it. Mike, I do appreciate it. You have a good, uh, I guess, a good morning for you. <laughs> thanks so much, Les. Bye. Thanks, Mike. So, Mike, we didn't get a chance to, to visit Cook while we were there. Did they have anything new at the show? No. as uh, he, They literally didn't have anything new. And ordinarily, you might say, you know, a bit of a bummer they didn't have anything new there to show. Or did they have much new at NAB? No, not really. But um, the real reason they had nothing new is that they have such a backlog of orders and they're so busy that Les literally thought he'd get lynched if he actually released <laughs> something new because all these existing customers would be like, okay, well, great with the new stuff, but can we just fulfill the orders for the stuff we want right now, please? Oh, yeah. 
Um, so I'm glad they're going really well. And uh, certainly digital cinematography has been a huge boost to a lot of the lens companies, especially ones that um, can reliably produce such good quality glass. But I do think it's funny that you're in a situation that, you know, people really don't want you to go do something else. They just want you to get this right. And, and I also say there are companies that ignore that and just continue to push on. And you get kind of frustrated with them. I've done that and go, look, I understand this is all great. But unless you get this solved, the rest of it's just bullshit. You know what I mean? Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. I mean, you don't steal sort of news cycles by not producing anything new. Um, but I've got to tell you, you can really annoy customer bases if you don't get stuff sorted. Now, they don't have any problem that they're trying to solve other than they're just uh, meeting demand and, uh, and uh, working with productions. But um, I'd be interested to see what that new Scorsese thing ends up doing. I really don't know what the details on it are. But um, the uh, Well, I think also the, the stereo thing is interesting, the matching lenses. And, I mean, I, the future is going to be quite interesting, too, regarding that. I mean, with hope, hoping eventually for that day where some of the planoptic technology gets cut up so you actually have one lens, right? Well, you have a million micro lenses, but you actually have some te- te- technology where that's not even a factor in it. Everything is going through the same lens. The other thing that's kind of interesting from a kiki camera techie point of view, and I can say this because it's uh, released in London, I got to see Prometheus. Um, now, it doesn't release here until the weekend in Australia, though it did release already in the UK to try and take advantage of the Queen's um, Jubilee weekend crowd, oh. and it's just gone mental. Um, but that, of course, was shot on dual epics. And uh, i got to say, I'm not going to review it. I'm not going to discuss anything. I'm not going to give any way plot points. I'm just going to say I thought the images looked really, really solid. So once that film is out and uh, maybe at the next RC, we can discuss it. Of course, Spider-Man's doing the same thing on the epic. And um, there's a lot of big films coming out with some really interesting stuff, but shot, you know, uh, proper stereo. So... I definitely saw it in stereo, screamed and, like a girl. And beautiful. I mean, I, I visited the the post houses in in London, uh, and I, absolutely, uh, absolutely fantastic, beautiful imagery. I haven't seen the film, un- unlike you, but yeah. Yeah, I'll vouch for the imagery. Let's just talk about the trailer for a second. Yeah, in, in mono. Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously, this is at the RC podcast, so we want to talk about cameras. But I got to say, some of those uh, that are in the trailer. Yeah. So I'm not giving anything away. Uh, shots of uh, Prometheus coming through the clouds and stuff. I just think, you know, for a shot that we've seen before, they look breathtakingly beautiful and original and wonderful. I thought it was just terrific work. Yeah, absolutely. And some funny stories behind that. But that's another... I, mean, I got a question another for you. I don't know if it's related or not, sort of. But uh, wasn't there a... I think I remember seeing a story on FX Guide recently about... Wasn't it Men in Black 3? Was it shot on film? Uh, a bunch of stuff recently has been shot on film and converted. Um, and Men in Black 3... I can't is, remember. I'm going to say was shot on film, and they shot some stuff on the Alexa, the night stuff, uh, and then it was a converted film. Uh, wow. This is, in fact, what happened on John Carter from Mars as well. It was a converted mm-hmm. film. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Um, it just, yeah. I was just surprised at another one. I, I didn't know that. Have you guys seen Men in Black 3 yet? No. I, uh, I, I saw it. We've obviously got some stuff up on uh, FX Guide about yep. it. Um, and... I've got to say, like, the conversion is very good. Like, um, I, um, I don't know that I'm being driven to 3D films that are converted. My personal thing is that I'm very keen to see things like Prometheus in 3D that was shot dual epic. Yeah. Um, but by the same token, you know, that's exactly the same reason I'm going to see Dark Knight in IMAX because it was shot with some IMAX cameras. Yeah. Uh, so I'm still biased towards wanting to see stuff in the format that it was shot in um, to judge it. And also I've got a personal interest uh, in red and stuff. But yeah, I mean, let's face it, the, um, 
We also saw some stuff for Spider-Man um, at Sony, uh, and again, I can't talk about that, but a lot of these films, it's really nice to see such a dedication to image quality mm-hmm. at both the camera end and right, following it right through to post-production. Because, you know, I mean, the IMAX cameras, let's, I mean, we can, I can talk about Dark Knight. We haven't done any stories on Dark Knight. I mean, there is some uh, stuff that um, uh, Paul Franklin posted just on Twitter. Um, bits of film that were in the gutter from somebody doing a take and just ripping off the end of it and, you know, throwing off a mag, whatever it was. And anyway, there was a piece of obviously trashed uh, short end that are just obviously not relevant. And, um, and it's just an enormous piece of bloody film. And the cameras are just enormous. And it's just, uh, you know... I mean, I can't wait to see that stuff. So, yeah, yeah and it's 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 a really significant investment in the imagery too. When you do shoot stereoscopic, I mean, people talk about post conversion being a time consuming process, but the pre processing of the individual cameras and the cleanup crew and oh, yeah. correcting the differences between the two cameras, like on Prometheus, uh, they had whole crews and facilities actually working on that to prep the images for oh, yeah. post. Right, it's a whole. So you, you could process. you know people go well, you just shoot it and it's difficult, but no, there's a significant amount of cleanup and tweaking on those original image yeah. acquisitions to maintain that quality that you're speaking of. Yeah, people tend to forget about the amount of data and the amount of tracking and roto and just the multiplication of yep. yeah, and the aberration, the difference. And there's going to be differences. There's going to be correct. There's going to be stuff you're going to need to. Uh, throw ocular or some other tool like that or mm-hmm. at it's it's just the nature of the beast yeah well thank you so much guys for taking time to talk to us and uh, run us through cine gear um is there anything we didn't cover do you want me to i mean i don't know what i don't know but is there anything i didn't ask you about no i think we no? had it covered it? no it was great yeah. no it was it was uh it was happy as i told you in the fxphdo deal i was really happy to be out here for it and see stuff and i mean there's also the stuff that i know nothing about right mike like these giant huge <laughs> lights the size of my car. Yeah, the spaceship over the spaceship, bar in the middle space, thing, that yeah, giant, which is, giant inflatable light. Which, which, for, really which cool, for a post guy is uh, kind of cool, cool yeah. stuff to see, but um, less knowledgeable about that stuff. Yeah, and but, you know, um, we didn't, we did, we weren't looking at things like segways like you would. And... <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, yeah, thanks for that, guys. Hey, uh, something that might be of interest to RC listeners, there's a uh, podcast in the um, Ooh, yeah. FX podcast uh, feed, which is with... Uh, Aidan Farrell from the farm in London. Now, this is part of a series we did talking to some of the world's best colorists, and we we do this when we can get to them, and that's not an easy thing. They're all keen to talk to us, but you know we got to sort of slot them in. So every couple of months or so, we maybe three or four months, we pick up another um, senior colorist, and we are very fussy as to who we put on. Um, this is an hysterical. Yeah, I, I thought it was a very funny interview. I mean, somebody commented here to me that um, I spoke less on this podcast than any other podcast I've ever done in history. <laughs> Um, but we got on like a house on fire talking and um, uh, his work from the 90s with Michel Gondry and all these guys I mean it's just you've got to listen to him talking about getting Bono to stick lolly wrappers in the telecine while he's working and the fact that he would only like transfer stuff with the music blasting so loud they had to yell at each other over the top of it I mean it's just bizarre right the way through to some of my favourite high sort of I got a high end I guess is the way to describe it um, interesting um, documentaries in that sort of BBC world where they were doing that just phenomenally complex and, and cutting edge kind of uh, documentary work and then uh, to recently where he's been doing 
period dramas and redefining the look of uh, period dramas in such award-winning shows as Downton Abbey. Anyway, it was great having a chat to him, even if I didn't get to say very much. But if you're into uh, camera tech and stuff, it's great listening to his approach. And he certainly comes at it from a point of view of, like, I don't want to be known as a, as a technical guy. I want to be known for the, the art and the craft. And uh, I'd recommend listening to it. Not the best image uh, audio quality in the world, but if you can just spare us <laughs> that it's um, worth exception. It. Yeah, it's worth it. It's worth it. And, yeah, uh, yeah he's a riot. I mean, I, yeah. just, I could, literally could have talked for hours. Yeah, I was excited to hear it after I, I, you had sent me the, the dossier on the, on the show before so I could do the intro and stuff. And I went and looked at the BAFTA clip that uh, played when he was given the BAFTA award. And he's hysterical and the footage is amazing. And it's just good stuff. So worth checking out for sure for people that love images. Yeah, and he has this interesting thing which somebody else had mentioned to me, which is um, – just really bears uh, thinking about, especially if you're young and listening to this podcast and stuff, um, a phenomenon that he had, and I've seen it ourselves with our contemporaries, guys, is that you sort of form these links to people in the industry and you become friends with people when you're starting out. And then kind of age is a tide that lifts all. And so when you get to a later (laughs) stage in your career, all these guys that you knew when they were young uh, are now really senior guys. And he was like working with filmmakers that really weren't big names, but then went on to become hugely right. successful because he knew them sort of back when they were like on their sort of first productions and stuff. And so now he is widely connected to all the best sort of filmmakers in London. Of course, they weren't all the top filmmakers when he first met them. And uh, it's an interesting thought that for those that are coming up through the ranks, you know, you, you, you're talking to people and doing favours of people and you think, you know, well, whatever, it's just this guy. Yeah. Um, but 20 years from now, that guy is going to be, you know, on a $150 million film. And uh, so it's a small industry. I guess that's, you know, we, we, we always knew that. But uh, it's funny hearing that again from him as he tells the story. One of the students of FXPHD a few years ago in a bar told me that he thought that was our plan for world domination with FXPHD, having our students eventually move into the senior ranks of the film business and we'd be set. Shh, shh, Oh, sorry. <laughs> we don't mention that out loud. I'm sorry. <laughs> Forgot. Guys, I've, I've got to let you go. Um, I have got to get on and start recording some stuff for PhD. Oh, by the way, I would be remiss if I didn't plug the fact that there's a sale on if you were interested in picking up any of the camera tech stuff that's happening this term in uh, PhD, course. but thought you didn't yeah, want to do three courses. So yeah, I'm behind on the course right now, but I, every time I get the little email saying the next episode's out, I'm like, damn it, now I'm further behind, but I'm going to watch every one of them, I promise you. <laughs> anyway, uh, John, you want to outline what that is on PhD? Yeah, actually, um, we did a lot of, it was actually something that came up at FMX, actually, um, talking to people when I was there in Europe, people, a lot of it saying they didn't really have enough time to take the full three courses and kind of get introduced to PhD. So we decided to do is just try a, a one-time only sale, and, and that's offer up two classes, plus you get background fundamentals for 199 bucks. It's only two versus three courses, but still a significant discount on, on what it would be if you just took two courses. And uh, man, it's been a wild success. People have really jumped on that as a way to actually check out you know a couple courses. It's about week eight of the term right now, week seven, week eight of the term. So it's a you know a little bit later in the term uh, as well. But it's a good time to join. And we really don't know if some of the courses are going to repeat in the near future. So if you see something, uh, I suggest you jump into it. Yeah, and people people say that all the time. It's like if they're really busy. It's like they you know they'd love to do it, but it's a commitment. And this gives you a way to do it with a f- one less class and a little less, a lot less money. So it's yeah. nice. 
Oh, well, let me just do the disclaimer and say <laughs> this is a limited sale. This is yes. not like we are now offering PhD. This may never come again, and certainly this may not be on offer next term or anything else. So this is not um, a, a complete change in how PhD works. Um, it's just we thought, given that we're late in the term and people wanted to take advantage of some yeah. stuff, that we'd uh, we'd offer this up. And as John said, a lot of people have responded, which has been great. Yeah, we listened cool. to people, had some great suggestions. We're like, hey, let's give it a shot, see what happens. Guys, awesome talking to you, but hey. I, as I say, I need to run. Thanks so <laughs> yep. much. Us too. We've got some wine and uh, stuff wine on and the, cheese on the uh, weekend so. wrap up here in LA. <laughs> <laughs> so have a good one. It's Thanks Monday for inviting us. And, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. See you guys. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. Copyright 2011, FX Guide, LLC.